Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith, from his namesake. For you also are among the Gentiles, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace for, for you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, church family. My name is Craig. I'm a member here, and I will be sharing the word with you this morning. Let's uh, open in a word of prayer. Father, it is indeed a wonderful privilege to stand here amongst your children and share the word with them. Thank you, Father God, for the gospel. And thank you for men such as Paul, who you used in such a powerful way to advance your gospel. And Lord, as we move through this book in the coming months ahead, we thank you, Lord, of the richness that you have given, given us uh, through your servant Paul. And Lord, as we unpack the gospel this morning as well, we pray, Lord, for those here who, Lord, who do not know you, who have walked through these doors today, uh, who are estranged from you and are perhaps searching for you. Lord, will you speak especially to them this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'd like you to take a moment to reflect upon your personal Christian journey. Can you recall the messenger who first gave the gospel to you? Can you recall the message that they presented? Was there anything particular that stuck out for you when you heard it? What about your calling? The moment the gospel was not just heard generally, but you heard the personal call from our Saviour. I'm going to switch to this. <laughs> the moment, like Paul, when the scales were removed from your eyes and you were given the gift of eternal life. I remember my messenger as though it was yesterday. The scene in my high school classroom how my religious instruction teacher was sitting on the corner of his desk as he unpacked the truth to us and gave us the gospel. As for the message, it's still clear to me, 38 years later. This teacher told us that there was no way to get to heaven without Jesus. The class was shocked, including myself. I, for one, had always believed that I was going to go to heaven. I thought of myself as a good person. I thought my teacher was a bit of a crackpot. <laughs> At the time, I had no idea 
that I'd come face to face with the general revelation of Jesus. Years later, I would experience the personal revelation of Jesus' calling on my own life. At 19, I was in the middle of the African bush while serving in the military. The strong, strong contrast between the peace of the nature and the clouds versus what was happening on the ground gave me a crushing weight, making me realize my need for peace, forgiveness, and a risen Savior. I often think about that moment, kneeling against a tree, dripping with sweat, looking up at the clouds. This was the personal calling of my Savior. My life was changed forever. Reflecting on my journey of faith, it's clear how the messenger, the message, and the calling have shaped me. Today, as we delve into Romans 1, 1 to 7, we'll explore the same three areas that are pivotal to our understanding of the gospel. You've just heard a summary of my testimony. The whole of Romans is, in fact, Paul's testimony of Jesus and the gospel. Not only is Romans a masterpiece in theology, but it is also instrumental in describing the clearest perspective of the good news. The great reformer Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the perfect gospel. In my own life, Romans is the book that I have read and studied the most. Perhaps it's the layers of truth that Paul has wrapped in there. And like a surprise gift, each time we read it, we learn something new. Perhaps it's some of the deep theological mysteries that to this day, after nearly 35 years of walking with the Lord, I still cannot fully grasp. Topics like election, reprobation, predestination, Israel and the church. And then there are the golden gems that communicate profound truth so simply. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not to mention from Romans chapter 12 to 16, all of the practical advice that Paul gives us around providing for your family, obeying the government, and passing judgment on others. But over all of this, the book of Romans is about the gospel, the good news of God's salvation plan for those who are lost. Now Paul is going to unfold the good news across 16 chapters in Romans. But he can't wait for those 16 chapters. And so he sums it up in the first seven verses. Just like my testimony was a summary of my conversion, verses 1 to 7 are like an executive summary of the book of Romans. Man, what a summary. Just take a closer look at verses 1 to 7. Depending upon what version of the Bible you're reading, there's not a single full stop there. It's like he's so enthusiastic about trying to get as much of the gospel out that he accelerates it and forgets to add some punctuation. Verses 1 to 7 are the longest introduction of all of Paul's letters and can be broken down into our three areas. The messenger, the message, and the calling. Firstly, let's look at the messenger. In verse 1, we're introduced to Paul, the messenger. Understanding Paul is key to understanding his letter to Romans. Paul identifies himself distinctly with three terms. A servant called to be an apostle and set apart for God's gospel. 
These titles are not just for Paul, but for all of us here. We are servants of the Lord, called and set apart for His purposes. Paul willingly describes himself as a servant of Christ and uses the language of a bond slave who chooses servitude out of devotion and love. Though slave may have some negative undertones, in the context of our service to Christ, it is an honor. Turning our gaze inward, we recognize that we ourselves are messengers of the gospel in our own right. Our call to evangelism mirrors Paul's journey, as we are sent to be bearers of the good news. This mission isn't just about receiving the gospel, but actively propagating it, fulfilling Christ's great commission to make disciples of all nations. While Paul's unique encounter with the risen Savior granted him apostolic authority, we also hold a powerful commission. Each of us has experienced our own road to Damascus moment, a personal and miraculous meeting that empowers us with authority in our mission. To conclude this section on the messenger, your engagement with the gospel is twofold. A deeply personal calling and a deeply urgent task which we are each set apart for. To go to all the world and share the story of our risen Savior. Through this dual lens, we not only appreciate the historical messenger, Paul, but also recognize our role in the living, breathing narrative of God's redemptive plan. Now, how are you doing this? Does it mean becoming missionaries to the lost people of the world? Or does it mean that when you leave here today, you pass under a sign hanging over the door? You are now entering the mission field. It's both. Yes, there are those like Paul who are equipped to go to the unreached people of the world. But now, in this modern post-Christian era, those lost people are outside that door. They're in the office. They're in the classroom. They're in our community. And each of us sitting here today are the messengers. Now that we've looked at the messenger, let's look at our second area, the message. Read with me verses 2 and 4. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me ask you a question. What makes the good news good? Especially when we're in such a broken world. Some years ago, I was presenting at a Shark Tank-like event for entrepreneurs. And there was a crew there that was pitching a solution for suicide prevention. I remember being shocked to learn that seven people a day commit suicide in Australia. A human tragedy shining a light on a generation that feels there is no answer for the pain except to try and end it. How did we get to this point? American preacher John MacArthur in his study on Romans highlights a four-stage pro stage progression that leads people to this point. Firstly, people struggle with the wrong desires. They have a problem with not being able to control these desires. As a result, there's a second problem that they face. 
They not only struggle with the wrong desires, but they also struggle with the consequence of those wrong desires. Guilt. Just as pain is a way for your body to identify physical injury, guilt is God's way of directing you to see the sin of your soul. The reason you and I have these vivid memories of sin with a great amount of remorse over what we have done is because God is showing us the disease of sin in our hearts. And guilt is there to remind us of it so that we can avoid that which causes us so much pain. The third thing that people suffer from is meaninglessness. If you're following wrong desires and if you're living with sin and guilt, you begin to ask yourself the question, what is life really all about? And so we come to the place where a person doesn't really understand why they live in our society. Life is empty, pointless and meaninglessness and meaningless. And that leads to our fourth problem, hopelessness. Where people see that the only way out is to take their own lives. It all seems pretty hopeless, doesn't it, church family? The presence of pain and suffering in the world is one of those deep existential questions that can make the good news seem at first glance like a paradox. How can news be good when the world is awash with so much that is clearly not good? It's a question that's both deeply personal and universally human, touching everyone's life in some way. The good news doesn't deny the reality of pain and suffering. Instead, it confronts it head-on, offering a narrative that encompasses suffering and promises hope and redemption through it. Just like a jeweler takes out a diamond and places it on a velvet mat to create contrast, so Paul does the same thing in Romans. Through all the brokenness of this world, Paul places the shining jewel of the gospel on the dark velvet of pain, suffering, guilt, meaninglessness, and hopelessness. And he highlights a beautiful gift. The message of the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That's literally the word, what the word gospel means. Good news. And yet Paul reiterates again and again and again about the good news. In verse 1, it's the good news of God. Then in verse 9, it's the good news of his son, Jesus. Then in verse 16, it's the good news of salvation. Throughout Romans, Paul calls it the glorious news of the blessed God. He calls it the blessed good news. He calls it the good news of the grace of God, the good news of peace, the good news of your salvation. When reading Romans, you can almost feel Paul's excitement brimming over eager to share this news with as many people as possible, as soon as possible. Are we as eager as Paul to share the gospel? An atheist once told William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, if I believed what you Christians say you believe about a coming judgment and that those who reject Christ will be lost, I would crawl on my bare knees on crushed glass all over London, warning men night and day to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. We should seek every opportunity to remind our lost loved ones of the great gift of salvation. Encouraging them to run to Jesus. Telling them again and again and again right up until their deathbeds. 
Brothers and sisters, it's never too late. It's never too often, and it's always and most urgently needed. What else does Paul talk about in verse 2 regarding the message? He talks about the fact that this news that the Jews have been waiting for, they've been waiting for for a long time. Not only the Jewish nation, in fact, but all of humanity have been waiting for this news. All throughout history. How much of our modern day literature and our movies portray a savior of some kind? Whether it's Superman, Iron Man, Nero from the Matrix, all of these stories revolve around a central messianic character. What a pity that Christ is not recognized by many as the fulfillment and promise of a savior. In spite of the fact that the Old Testament prophets have been pointing towards a Savior for thousands of years. This is what Paul now highlights. It goes right back to the fall when God promised that his Savior would crush the head of the serpent. The prophet, this prophecy was fulfilled at the cross when Christ defeated death and paid the price of our sins. Past, present and future. This was one of the many prophecies that came true during the lifetime of Christ. Our strongest evidence that the claims of the Bible are true is prophecy. This is why Paul introduces this to his readers so early on in Romans, verse 2. You see, prophecy is miraculous. Atheists can argue about archaeology, bibliography, historicity, and all other illities money can buy, but their mouths are stopped when it comes to the supernatural nature of prophecy. Just consider Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid on him, and by his wounds we were healed. What about Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus? They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. A thousand years before Jesus. To that level of detail. That's only two prophecies. What about all the other well-known prophecies? The time of his birth, spoken about in Daniel 8 and 9. That he would be born in Bethlehem, spoken about in Micah 5. That he would be born of a virgin, spoken about in Isaiah 7. That he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11. That he would be mocked, Psalm 22. That he would be crucified, John 3. That he would die with the wicked, but he would be buried with the rich, Isaiah 53. According to a university study, the likelihood of one man fulfilling just, just eight prophecies, those ones that I've mentioned, is a staggering 10 to the power of 17. That's a one in 100,000 trillion chance that one person could fulfill just those eight prophecies. And you know what's even more amazing? There are 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Bible. This is the body of evidence that Paul now directs us to. Never doubt again, brothers and sisters, the absolute truth of the Bible and the veracity of its claims. Don't let anyone tell you we have a blind faith. I think it takes more faith to not believe than to believe. 
So what's all this prophecy and good news about then? Verses 3 and 4. Follow with me. It's regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Christ Jesus our Lord. The good news is about the who. The good news is not about religion. It's not about a system. It's not about a denomination. The good news is about a person. God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. All other religions tell you to do something to find the way. Go here, say this, bow down, do these different things. They all point to the way of salvation. But what does Jesus say? Christianity is different. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the one who offers an answer to man's sinful desires. The Bible tells us that when we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, we can set our affections on things above and not on the things of this earth. We are no longer victims of the lust of flesh, but we can produce in our lives the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. The Bible tells us that when we know the Lord Jesus Christ, no longer are we under the burden of guilt because He has washed every sin away. He cleanses every sin and every defilement and replaces our guilt with a sense of absolute and total eternal forgiveness. He takes away our meaninglessness and He gives us a reason to live. He takes away our hopelessness and promises us a forever place with Him in heaven. He turns all our days of vanity into days full of promises, joy, and peace. Now that is good news that I would like to hear every day. At the heart of what we believe, woven into verses 3 and 4 of our scripture today, is a profound truth. Jesus embodies both humanity and divinity. Fully God, fully man. He didn't just tick boxes to fulfill prophecy. He confirmed his sovereignty by conquering death itself through his resurrection from the dead. And because of this great news, we now receive grace to fulfill the third and final part of our story this morning, the calling. Remember, we had the messenger. We've just spoken about the message. And I'll end with a brief section on the calling. In verses 6 and 7, Paul brings this twofold calling to the forefront. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And you are called to be his holy people a people worthy of that calling. This double calling, to belong and to be worthy, is central to our faith. Joel highlighted this duality when he said the gospel of grace will bind us and send us. It ties us to Christ, giving us a sense of belonging that defines our identity and propels us into the world to be salt and light living out and sharing the gospel, living up to the calling. Paul isn't just talking about believing in Jesus. He's talking about a deep 
belonging to Him. A belonging that reshapes who we are from the inside out. We find the sense of belonging throughout Scripture. Psalm 100 says, It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. We belong to Him. These types of verses speak of us as God's people, the sheep of His pasture. It's a proprietary claim. We're called to be His, and He is passionate about us. This isn't about finding our identity in transient things. It's about being God's fully and completely. And when it comes to being called to be saints, we're reminded that sainthood isn't a badge that we earn. It's a grace-given identity. It's not about spiritual elitism, but about every believer being transformed and owned by grace. This calling, as Paul says, comes from Jesus Christ himself, directly to you personally. It's not just about our decision to follow. It's about being chosen by him. A sovereign call that places the honor squarely on Jesus. For those of you who have not heard God's personal calling in your lives, who are still struggling with wrong desires, who are still carrying around guilt and remorse, who are perhaps at the point of feeling a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness. Take heart. The Lord will complete the work He has started in your life. Romans 10 has a promise for you. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. But Lord, most importantly, we thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, because, Lord, it's all about the who. It's all about Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you are a jealous God and that you love us with a proprietary nature, Lord. We belong to you. You have paid a price for us. And you love us, Heavenly Father, with a love that we can barely understand. We know the extent to which we love our children, Lord. And yet, Lord, your love is greater than that. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus and the sacrifice that he made to pay the price for our sins, past, present, and future. We thank you that we have hope in this life, that through all of the hopelessness, vanity, and meaninglessness, Lord Jesus, you bring meaning to our lives, and not only that, you bring meaning to creation. You bring meaning to every aspect of daily living. And we're in a world, Lord, that doesn't see it. All of the body of evidence that points to you as the Savior, that points to you as the Messiah, and it is ignored we are mocked, Lord, and yet, Lord, you have given us a great commission to go into the world and to share this truth, to be salt and light to a world that is running full speed towards hell, full speed towards condemnation. But, Lord, there is that saying, but, God, there is the gospel, there is the good news. 
and blessed are the feet of those that bring good news. Lord, allow each of us to be the bearers of that good news in our words, in our actions, this very day as we walk out of this door, as we realize that we are now entering the mission field. Give us opportunities this very week, Lord, to speak the truth of Christ, to speak the gospel into the lives of the lost. We ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.